those food references were not lost on me. And to tell you the truth, the idea of having a taffy pull rather intrigued me. And so one day, Tricky went on down to Lion's Cave. We love stories! It's time for the apple seat, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. And we've got a great hour coming up. Stories from Donna Ingham and Don White and Big Joe Pagliuca. And uh, these are stories about families. You know, families are such important things. We're born into them. We spend so much time with them in our lives. And it's natural to have stories about family and the impact its members can have on each other. Each family is different, and so each story is unique, and it's something that makes the world beautiful and varied. And the stories we've got for you today are about family, about different takes on what family means and feels like. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Trent Horton. Trent, it's great to have you with me. It's good to be here. We're going to hear a Donna Ingham story. Tell me a little bit about this tale. Yeah, so I guess one of the reasons I, I wanted to bring this story is in a few ways, it reminds me of my own mother. Mm. Um, so this is a, it's kind of a dedication that Donna Ingham does to, to her own mom. And, um, and in certain ways, her mom kind of just reminds me of my mom in the fact <laughs> that she just kind of cares about everybody yeah. and tries to take care of everyone. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's not Mother's Day, obviously that's, that's been a few months ago, but I never, I think it's always appropriate to honor our moms because they work so hard. Yeah. And, and I really like that story, this story because of that. It doesn't require it being Mother's Day to honor our moms. And of course, that's kind of the power of storytelling, isn't it? Storytelling like this, uh, Donna Ingham talking about somebody that makes you think of somebody that is dear to you. Mm -hmm. Donna Ingham, of course, is a great tall tale teller. She comes to us from Texas and has a whole trophy shelf full of trophies for winning liars contests. Yeah, tall tale contests, right? Yep. And uh, this story, of course, is uh, one of these sweet, even a little bit musical stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to hear Donna Ingham sing just a little bit and tell this sweet tale. In fact, the story is called Sweet Sue. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. One of my parents was musical. Neither played a musical instrument, and neither would even think of singing in public. I don't believe I ever heard them sing very loud, even in church. But they both loved to sing. My mother would sing in the kitchen. That was her favorite room. She would sing the church songs out of the old Cokesbury hymnal, songs like In the Garden and The Old Rugged Cross. But she liked the popular secular songs, too, and she was particularly fond of any song that had her name in it. Her name was Sue. So she would sing, Sue, City, Sue, and if you knew Susie like I know Susie. But I think her favorite must have been this one, because I remember it all the way through. All the stars above know the one I love, sweet Sue, just you. 
And the moon on high knows the reason why it's you, sweet Sue. No one else, it seems, ever shared my dreams. Without you, dear, I don't know what I'd do. In this heart of mine, you live all the time, sweet Sue, just you. Now, my mother was a single parent before that was common, much less fashionable. So she had to work, and she worked hard. But she also liked to have fun. And she thought anything you did just for fun had to include food. Maybe that's a southern thing or a Texas thing. At any rate, it was my mother's thing. She was a good cook, but she knew how to cook in only one quantity. Enough for a farm full of harvest hands. It didn't matter how many or how few showed up at our table to eat. It was going to be laden with platters and bowls and pitchers full and overflowing. My mother was proud of her cooking. She was a prideful woman after all, but it was a healthful pride. It kept her going. She was proud of her appearance, too. For example, she would never so much as step outside to pick up the morning paper without first putting her face on. That's what she called it putting her face on. It was not a long process, but it was thorough. First a light application of foundation, followed by judicious pats of face powder to take the shine off her nose, she said. She would smooth and shape her lipstick with the tip of her index finger. Now, she didn't use eyeshadow, but she did wear mascara, applied with a tiny little brush, looked a little like a toothbrush, only much smaller, moistened just enough to pick up some of the black caked substance in a red compact case with Maybelline scripted on the lid. Then with an oversized pencil of the sort first graders use when they're struggling to print the alphabet in a big chief tablet, she would very carefully draw in the eyebrows she had plucked away in an earlier fashion craze in the 1920s. She had beautiful black hair that, as it started turning gray, simply formed a silver cap on top of the hair that was still black underneath. But lest that silver cap should ever appear the least bit dingy or yellow, she and her hairdresser conspired to control it with a rinse that, of course, would simply turn it a sort of purplish blue. I remember one time when Mother was up in her 70s and she had had a bizarre series of medical episodes that had kept her in the hospital for a month. When she got out of the hospital, there was but one thing uppermost in her mind, getting her hair fixed. She was staying at our house while she recuperated, and mind you, she was still so weak that she could barely lift her head up from the pillow. But there is no more determined woman on this planet than one who is on her way to an appointment at the beauty shop. We lived in the small Texas panhandle town of Texhoma, and in a small town, all things are possible. The hairdresser was put on alert, my husband backed his pickup up to our front porch and lowered the tailgate. He lifted my mother out of her bed, 
put her in her wheelchair, wheeled her down the hall across the porch and into the bed. That is the back of the pickup. Locked the wheelchair, closed the tailgate, and drove her the five or six blocks to the beauty shop. There she was unloaded, shampooed, set, and crowned with purple once again. Loaded back in the bed of the pickup for the ride home, she was feeling much better about herself. Fortunately, it was a lovely spring day because there sat my mother in the back of that pickup giving her queen's wave to all the neighbors who were out in their front yards to see what was an unusual sight, even in a small town full of eccentric people. Now, that's just the kind of woman my mother was. Years and years before that episode, when I was still a student at Texas Tech University, I was home for the weekend at my mother's house in Brownfield. We were sitting at the kitchen table talking before I headed back to Lubbock. Just out of the blue, my mother said, You know, I don't think you young people know how to have fun anymore. Why, when I was a girl... We had picnics and box suppers and taffy pulls. All those food references were not lost on me. And to tell you the truth, the idea of having a taffy pull rather intrigued me. So somehow we went forward with the idea of having a taffy pull one weekend before the Christmas holidays. The invitations went out by word of mouth in my classes in the dormitory among my sorority sisters, and on the appointed day, people showed up. People I didn't even know showed up, and they showed up hungry, as hungry as a farm full of harvest hands. Mother had baked a big turkey and had it sitting on top of the stove to cool. The first wave stripped that bird to the bone. It never even made it to the table. She had hot spice cider in a big coffee urn. The hoard drained it in a matter of minutes. I can't tell you how many people there were. I never took time to count, but I'm guessing 30 or 40 people grazed their way through our house that day. Mother was in her element. Standing in the middle of the kitchen with her face on and her hair properly coiffed, handing out paper plates and napkins. In between courses, our guests would go out in the backyard and play touch football or some other game. I didn't get to participate because Mother was sending me to the grocery store to buy more cider and more snacks. Heaven forbid that anyone should ever go away from her house hungry. Then we got to the actual taffy pull itself, and the house filled with that pungent odor of vinegar and water and sugar boiling down to the hard crack stage that signals it is ready to be poured out onto buttered platters and flavored with a bit of vanilla. Then as soon as the taffy was just cool enough to handle, eager if inexperienced hands slathered with butter began to pull and stretch it, sometimes working in four-handed teams, doubling it back and pulling and stretching again until it began to stiffen and turn white. I didn't get to participate in that either, as Mother was sending me back to the grocery store for more sugar, more vinegar, more cider, and more snacks. 
I did get to hand out the prizes for the first burned fingers and the whitest taffy and the dirtiest taffy and whatever other categories my mother could dream up. Our garage floor was sticky for months. When the last of our guests had left to go back to Lubbock, each one clutching wads and twists of taffy wrapped in wax paper, Mother finally sat down in her wreck of a kitchen. The turkey carcass was still sitting in the roaster on the stove. There were telltale drips of cider running down the front of the cabinets and puddled on the floor. There was a great glob of unpulled taffy right in the middle of the kitchen table. And my mother looked over at me and said, Now, wasn't that fun? And I had to say, Yes, it was fun. Let's do it again next year. And so we did. The next year, even more people showed up. The local newspaper came and took a group picture, although Mother was much too busy in the kitchen to be in it herself. Then I graduated from college and went off to make my way in the world, so we never had another taffy pull after that. Oh, we had other food-fueled fun times, but never another taffy pull. So those two were very special, certainly to me, and I think to my mother, too. And my friends, well, it's been over 50 years now, and they still remember those taffy pulls, too. Some of them, while we were still at Tech, started calling my mother Sweet Sue, because I think they must have heard her singing that song in her kitchen. No one else, it seems, ever shared my dreams. Without you, dear, I don't know what I'd do. In this heart of mine, you live all the time. Sweet Sue, just you. Donna Ingham with Sweet Sue here on the Appleseed. You know, Trent Horton, You before we started listening to that story, you talked about how it reminded you of your own mom. You mm-hmm. know? And as Donna Ingham talks about taffy pulls and yep. things like that, it made me wonder if there is an activity that you will associate with your mom as life goes on. Um, yeah, for sure. I think decorating the Christmas tree is one of them. Um, she always likes to do that as yeah. well as, uh, she's always been really good about, um, helping us prepare dinner. Yeah. You know, not yeah. that, not just her cooking, but like also teaching us how to do it. Yeah. And so I, I attribute a lot of that to, to her. <laughs> you know, uh, there are, there are things that can be real story uh, triggers, right, for mm-hmm. us. Uh, we hear a, a song. Donna Ingham talks about that song, Sweet Sue. And I think songs can be, gosh, they're, they're better story triggers than just about anything else. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, these melodies come to us and, and we remember the people with whom we heard the song. Or uh, I, I, I thought as we listened to that story about my mother, my mother who spent her whole adult life as a musician, played the violin and sang and, and all kinds of stuff. And, and yeah. now she's, my mother's still with us, but she's, she's, she's going, her memory is going and mm-hmm. she's, she's actually pretty far from us these days, yeah. you know. But if we put on a song that she has known, uh, she always sings along and sings in 
perfect harmony. That's and cool. it's such a it's such a lovely thing. And I thought about my own mother, as you did, as we listened to uh, that story by Donna Ingham. What a delight to hear that story. Donna Ingham, uh, an English professor as well as a storyteller, and such a pleasure to hear. Sweet Sue here on the Appleseed. Trent, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, we heard the beautiful story, Sweet Sue, from Donna Ingham. That's from a collection called Waiting for Roy and Other Family Tales. Don White and Big Joe Pagliuca coming up. A couple of stories very different from each other, but you're not going to want to miss a word of either one. First, because we know that sharing memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine. It's an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. I went to a movie once, a biopic of sorts, about a guy who was in the audience watching the movie along with me. No kidding, the subject of the movie was in the audience watching the movie. It was a movie about a guy named John Groberg, who had worked in Tonga in the 1950s as a missionary. And in this showing, Mr. Groberg was in the audience. It just happened to be that way. Well, the truth is, I'd seen the movie already, so I spent my time in the theater watching the guy. I was interested partly because I know that the changes that get made to a true story when the story gets made into a film are sometimes significant. Multiple real-life people get condensed into a single character or events get compressed or expanded or reordered to make a story clearer or to make it feel more like a story or even to make the real-life story into something that people will be interested in seeing and in paying money to see. And I wanted to watch Mr. Groberg as this version of his life played out on screen. And it was delightful. He really liked it. He'd probably seen the movie a dozen times, but in this showing, he had a ball. I'm glad I was there to see it. I think about that movie experience from time to time. I tell stories about people, and you do too. I mean, sometimes I tell stories to one person that I've heard from another person. And I'm not talking about the kind of stories you tell to be snarky or mean. I'm not talking about gossip. I'm just talking about stories I like and that I like to tell. And remembering Mr. Groberg's face as he watched the movie about his own life helps me to remember to be as careful with the stories of other people as the movie seemed to be with Mr. Groberg's story. Once I was getting ready to play some music. I was in a little outdoor gathering of songwriters from all over the country. And that night there would be a big concert in town. But this afternoon, the songwriters were enjoying each other's company as they ate burgers and hot dogs off the grill and swapped tunes. And it was going to be my turn to play in a few minutes. But the guy before me asked to be able to play one more tune, and everybody was up for it. And so he looked down at his guitar and started to play. And that guy, the guy playing music before me, he was playing a song I wrote. 
he was playing my song. And it was the most amazing experience for me. Not because I suddenly thought I was cool enough that other people were covering my material. Uh, not really. Uh, okay, maybe that was part of it, a little part of it. But mostly I was just amazed at how careful the guy was with the song. He was playing it like it was to be taken seriously, like he knew that the song was important to me and he wanted to be careful with it. I watched him play, and I watched him sing as he played, and I watched the audience in the yard listening to the song, and, well, I'll remember that for a long time, just like I'll remember watching Mr. Groberg sitting in the movie, watching the version of his life that had been made by movie makers and enjoying it so much because they had been careful with it. And there's a thing that happens all the time, I guess. Someone tells a story about someone else in a gossipy way, just snarking on them, and the story somehow gets painfully back to the person who is the subject of the story. Or even worse, the subject of the story overhears the story being told in the first place, the teller never knowing that the subject is within earshot. Ever happened to you? It's happened to me. I guess I'd have to admit even that I've been on both sides of that equation as the teller and as the subject. But a couple of times in my life, blessed times, I've had an enormous privilege, the privilege of watching someone tell the story of someone else in a careful way, a way that suggests an understanding that we're all in this thing together. I've seen everyone walk away from a story like that a little richer, a little better. And it's a little bit of a reminder for me as I tell stories on stage or on the radio or around the kitchen table that I owe it to my fellow humans to be careful with their stories. Someday, it's a good bet that someone will say, let me tell you a story about a person I know, and the person will be you. In that moment, it's worth hoping that you've been as careful with their story as you pray they're about to be with yours. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear a story called Crying Woman's Channel from the storyteller and musician Don White in just a few minutes. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the books that we love, the films that we see, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and certainly the tales that we tell, passed down from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And talking about some of those ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is something that we love to do with friends. I'm so pleased to be joined by a longtime friend of the show, Ed Stivender, joining us from his home in Pennsylvania. Ed, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. Oh, pleasure to be with you, Sam. Thanks for inviting me. I have sometimes, I've had occasion to talk with you before. Ed, of course, is a venerated member of the storytelling community. It's sometimes been fun to say, Ed, hero of the storytellers, who are your storytelling heroes? Uh -huh. And, and those, that's made for some interesting conversation. We want to talk about one of those people now. Absolutely. Jackie Torrance was her name. 
she filled the stage like no other teller that I have ever met, an amazing woman. She came from Salisbury, North Carolina, and she was early on in the storytelling movement. She was um, a large black woman who wore these very sweet, colorful dresses and had a wonderful, expressive face. Her face could launch a thousand ships, <laughs> tell a thousand stories. She didn't even have to open her mouth just by moving her face. You could see a range of emotions in this face. The most wonderful part of the face, of course, were the eyes that would light up, that would show um, amazement and uh, joy and fun and scary stuff. And then the other thing was her hands. She had amazing hands with amazing fingernails. <laughs> she would tell stories from the uh, Black folk tradition, uh, stories about uh, Br'er Raccoon and Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby. And she could do anything from that tradition because she was physically from that tradition. And so it was a delight to listen to her tell those stories. As the years went by, we sort of became friends. And she ended up giving me uh, some very important advice about how to make it in a, the storytelling world when they were paying $15 to do a show. She was um, the first storyteller I ever saw on the Johnny Carson show. But it was really a thrill to see someone on, uh, that I knew on that, on that thing. She gave me wonderful advice about how to uh, um, uh, budget the little bit of money that a storyteller was making. For instance, that if you don't have the money to pay the phone bill, don't sign the check. That allows for time to pass where the phone bill figures out, oh, he didn't sign his check, we have to send it back, we have to send it back. And hopefully by the time you can pay it, um, you have money in the bank from the show that you did in between time. So she, she was full of wonderful advice like that. She was a person who let me know about the IRS tax code. She had these wonderful hands on the end of which were amazing fingernails. And Jackie Torrance let me know that one of the, one of the facts about the IRS was that you could uh, deduct uh, professional expenses. And Jackie Torrance was able very legally and very justly and very ethically exempt her fingernail care costs. It was really wonderful. The best piece of advice she ever gave to me was try to cash the check before you leave the town. Hmm. Incredible advice. So she, she was full of practical wisdom as well as a brilliant uh, storyteller. I remember one time in the early days of the storytelling festival, and there wasn't exactly a resource center. And so myself and Jackie Torrance and Chuck Larkin of Happy Memory 
were um, standing in front of the Christopher Taylor's house in uh, maybe 1982 and trying to um, figure out what to do with the cassettes that we all had in uh, the trunks of our cars that we would carry and that would end up paying for gas on the road. And so we um, decided to uh, set up tables right there in front of the Christopher Taylor house. And we did some decisions about how much cassettes cost. And Chuck Larkin and Jackie Torrance and I decided that $5 was the fair price for a cassette storytelling tape. And so we set the situation up. And um, nowadays you can't buy cassette tapes and there's no resource that you can get for $5. For $5. In those days, it was a, it was a rational piece. Yeah. Um, later on, Jackie uh, had some health uh, problems. And uh, the, last, uh, the last time I visited her in her house in Salisbury, <clears throat> she was, um, uh, not very well, but she was herself, um, and she was very appreciative of the um, LDS female missionaries who would come to her house every week at some point and help her with um, her uh, health issues and, um, and, and visit with her. Uh, she was a wonderful storyteller, and um, she um, will be missed. No one could certainly replace uh, Jackie Torrance. Um, and it was uh, such an honor to have a hero, a heroine, and then to get to know that heroine and to get practical wisdom from that heroine on how to work through the financial realities of a beginning storyteller. <laughs> Life on the road, right? Life on, Life the, on road. the road. Well, I'll tell you, you know, these people who make an impact in our lives are worth observing and preserving as well as we can in memory and story. Such a pleasure to have Ed Stivender with us. Ed, cash the check before you leave town. I will, Sam. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being with us. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. The great Pennsylvania storyteller, Ed Stivender, you know, stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Ed. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Don White and Big Joe Pugliuk in a minute. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Don White, a story about marriage. Don loves baseball. His wife loves romances. There's a difference between the two, but Don actually says that can be a good thing. Here's the story. It's called Crying Woman's Channel. Happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. I used to be a stand-up comedian, but there was too much money in that. <laughs> I had to go back to being a folk singer. But I love stand-up, I love everything about it. I teach it, I uh, study it. And um, if you know anything about stand-up, you'll notice that a lot of comedians build their whole act on the differences between men and women. There's good reason for that. A lot of differences between men and women. And it's easy land for the mining of humorous material. Now, if you came to my house and you were trying to figure out the difference between my wife and I, there would be two things that would be obvious right away. The first thing, would be blood pressure. 
That's right. I said blood pressure. I have high blood pressure. My doctor wants to put me on lisinopril. I didn't know what it was, so I went to the internet. Because the internet is where you go to learn everything that's not true about what you're interested in. <laughs> so there, in the deepest, darkest, most furthermost regions of the lisinopril section of the World Wide Web, I read that lisinopril was made from snake venom. Snake venom. And I thought to myself, you know, when I was a younger man, the idea of taking a little snake venom on the weekend might have appealed to me. <laughs> but now, I am not a younger man anymore, and I do not want to take the snake venom, so I have to change my life. I have to stop eating salty food and hydrate and exercise and do all the many things I have so successfully avoided to this point in my life. So I bought this machine to take my blood pressure. It's a box like this. It's got a screen on it with some numbers come up in it. Got some buttons here and a tube comes up and this thing wraps around my arm and I press the buttons and it sounds like this. And then, two numbers come up in the screen. And I don't like those numbers, so I do it again. <laughs> but this time, I'm thinking peaceful thoughts. I'm thinking peaceful thoughts. I don't want to take the snake venom. I'm trying to remember what that hippie girl said about chakras. I'm just trying to like, breathe. I'm trying to thinking about children playing in fields of sunflowers. And I'm just, just trying to get a good number out of this machine. And one part of me is so focused, trying to get a good number, trying to breathe, relax. And the other part of me is so aggravated that I have to do this. But I focus on trying to do the right thing. I get the good number. I'm trying to breathe, to breathe. And I look in the doorway of my office, and my wife is standing there, and my wife has low blood pressure. <laughs> Did I say low? I meant no. She has no blood pressure, none. And she's standing there, eating a two-pound bag of salty potato chips. And she's taunting me. Why do you have high blood pressure? Munch, munch, crunch, crunch. I don't have high blood pressure. I have low blood pressure. Munch, crunch. You know, if you were more like me, you wouldn't have this problem. Crunch, munch, crunch. And I look at the screen on my machine and it says, There's like smoke coming out of it. I'm like, I told you never to talk to me when I'm hooked up to this thing. Why do you have high blood pressure? Crunch, munch. I don't have high blood pressure. I have low blood pressure. Munch, crunch. I go, you know what? There's a good reason why you have low blood pressure. Why? Why do I have low blood pressure? I go, the reason 
why you have low blood pressure is because you are not married to you! Now, the other obvious difference between my wife and I is what it is we choose to watch on television. Now, if I have the remote control in my hand on those rare and glorious days when nobody's bothering me and I can do whatever I want, I will always watch baseball. I love baseball, but my wife hates baseball. And when I say she hates baseball, I'm not saying she don't like it. I'm saying she hates it. She hates it. And that's why I married her. Now I can see, you're not all with me on this. Here, here, come closer. Let me explain something to you. Marriage is difficult, a lot of problems. Starts out like this. Come here, kissy, kissy, huggy, huggy, I love you. We're gonna buy a little house in Metro West. <laughs> then you have these little babies and they love you. They just look at you with their big eyes and they love you. And then they become teenagers and they hate you. They hate you. <laughs> and then you went for a job interview and the person that interviewed you, who was gonna be your boss later, he seemed normal. He didn't seem like a psychopath during the interview. But then you got the job, 10 years went by, the man is insane, he's insane. You're working for a psychopath. More pressure, more struggle. Then you went to buy a house and you're signing these papers at the, at the signing, one, two, three, and they keep talking about this thing, an adjustable rate. You don't know what it means. Like that, there, 10 years later, hi, you know what it means now? It means you're never gonna pay for that house. More pressure, more struggle, more the boss is a psychopath. I'm never gonna pay for this house. A lot of problems, struggles every day. So. It's hard to stay married. It's hard to stay married. So in order to, to stay married a long time, you have to build stress relief into every day of your marriage. So think about this. If you're a man or a woman and you love baseball and you marry someone who hates baseball over the life of a 30, 40, 50 year marriage, that's 162 times a year. <laughs> for three glorious hours <laughs> that the person you're married to will leave you alone. <laughs> All I'm saying so you can stay married a long time if you can build 162 three-hour reprieves from each other into every summer. So it's a beautiful day, the middle of the summer, a million things I could be doing around that house. Instead, I'm sitting on the couch and I'm watching baseball. My wife will come in and look at me with such disgust. And in her mind, she's counting down a list of 115 things that she's sure at this moment I could slash should B, mowing, trimming, painting, sanding, bringing up from the basement, putting into the attic, something. <laughs> but instead, I'm sitting on a couch and I'm watching baseball. And it doesn't help that I got my shirt open so my belly button can watch the game too. <laughs>
That's not helpful. I'm not being helpful in those moments. And she will look at me with such disgust. And she'll look at the TV and she'll look at me and she'll look at the TV and she'll look back at me and she'll say, there is nothing going on on that TV. It's just a bunch of men standing around in a field spitting <laughs> and scratching themselves. And I will say to her, yes. It's terrible. You, you should get as far away from this as possible. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, I am hopelessly ensnared in their evil web, but you, you could save yourself! Save yourself. <laughs> now, conversely, and I know this is not possible, but I am here to testify that the impossible is possible. If I walk into a room in the morning, in the evening, in the middle of the night, any time in the 24-hour cycle, and my wife has decided what to watch on the television in that room, 100%, 100% of the time, I will look, and there will be a woman crying on the television. <laughs> That is not possible. There can't always be a woman crying on the television. Now, we have the Fios plan at my house, and I was looking through the book trying to figure out what I'm paying for, and I see we have HBO, Cinemax, Showtime, and there it was, the Crying Woman's Channel. <laughs> Did you know you were paying for the Crying Woman's Channel? Look in that book, it's in there. Now that's a difference between men and women. Now in my adult life, any time that I've had opportunity to go through uh, my list of possible entertainment options for a given evening, the idea of watching a woman in crisis crying on my television, it doesn't make the top 1,000. <laughs> when my wife gets something out of it, something that only she can understand, and because I'm a good husband, and I'm trying to get in touch with my extraordinarily elusive feminine side. Sometimes, when she's watching the Crying Woman's channel, I will go in and I will sit beside her and I will study. And she hates when I do that because she knows it's only a matter of time uh, before I start mocking the program. But I don't start out that way. I have good intentions. I love you. 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 And you need to explain to me. You went to work today. You came home. There were things that you did around the house. You have one free hour with which you can do whatever you want. And then you have to go to bed and start all over again. I, I need you to explain to me why you would choose to share the only free hour that you have in the whole day with this woman on a television. I make up running all over the place. Everybody's lying to her. <laughs> Nothing but righteous indignation streaming out of every character on the program. She's got some kind of disease that only Oprah can understand. I need to understand why. And so I study the Crying Woman's channel, and within seven minutes, seven minutes, 
An invisible tube comes out of the television and it lodges into the front of my cranium. And with every syllable that is feloniously called dialogue on the crying woman's channel, I can feel the television sucking numbers off the top of my IQ. And after 20 minutes, I lose my ability to do small multiplication tables. <laughs> and after a half an hour, I'm just sitting there crying. And I don't know why. Now, a couple of years ago, my wife had surgery. Minor surgery. That's what people were calling it. Let me tell you something. There are precious few absolute truths in this world, but here is an absolute truth. Between this minute and the day you die, I guarantee you that any time you hear the term minor surgery, that it will be coming out of the mouth of a person who is not having the surgery. <laughs> she had her gallbladder removed. I don't know what world you live in, but in my world, Donnyland, I call it, over here in Donnyland, reaching in, yanking out an internal organ, not minor. If you think it is, how about I just wander off the stage and kind of go out into the crowd and just sort of randomly pick someone and, and begin the process. I feel we can all rest assured that if we see Don White, the folk singer from Lynn, Massachusetts, removing our gallbladder, we will be thinking, you know, something major is happening to me. And so we're taking her down to surgery. And um, she's got an IV in both arms and her arms are tied down to the bars on the side of the bed. She couldn't move them. She started to cry. And she asked me if I would wipe her eyes for her because she couldn't move her hands. And I said, okay. I took a tissue and I wiped her left eye and then her right eye. And while they were wheeling her down to surgery, I took the tissue and I folded it this way and that way, and I put it in my pocket. Why? I'll tell you why. Because if something happened and she didn't come out of that surgery, I would have treasured those two teardrops for the rest of my life. What am I saying? I'll tell you what I'm saying. I'm saying being married to this woman for 35 years has made me a girl. <laughs> now <laughs> and I have a new appreciation for the crying woman's channel <laughs> Cr 
Crying Woman's Channel, a story told for you by Don White here on the Appleseed. We're going to wrap up today with a story from Big Joe Pagliuca. Why is he called Big Joe? Well, he used to teach tiny little kids in a preschool, and there was a student with the same name, Joe, there. And since everybody got them confused, he became known as Big Joe. Here he is with Tricky the Turtle and the Lion's Cave. We'll wrap up with this story today. This story is called Tricky the Turtle and the Lion's Cave. Once upon a time, there was a turtle named Tricky. And Tricky lived deep in the jungle. Now, Tricky had a pretty good life. But all the big animals around there used to make fun of him. All the big animals would say, Hey, look at you. You're just a little tiny turtle. You're not big and strong like all of us. You're not strong like lion. You're not mean like tiger. You're not big like elephant. You're just a little tiny goofy turtle. And Tricky really didn't like that at all. And one day he sat there and he thought, Hey, you know what? Maybe I'll play a little trick on those animals and teach them a lesson. Mm Mmm-hmm. And so one day, Tricky went on down to Lion's Cave. And he went and he hid inside some bushes and he waited. Well, Lion left his cave to go get some breakfast. And when he did, Tricky crawled into Lion's Cave. (laughs) This is going to be really fun. (laughs) And he went inside. Now Lion's Cave was big and deep and had a great echo to it. And if you said something in Lion's Cave, your voice would sound loud like this. And that's just what Tricky wanted. So Tricky waited inside that deep, dark cave. And after a while, Lion came back home. When he came back home, he heard something moving around in his cave. He looked inside, but he couldn't quite see. It was too dark. And so Lion, who was extra cautious, stood outside of his cave, and Lion said, Hey, who's in my cave? And using his echo from the cave, Tricky said, This is my cave now. And Lion said, What? I'm Lion, and I have great big teeth to bite you. And Tricky said, I eat lions. Whoa, he eats lions, huh? What kind of an animal eats lions? said, oh man, I better go call Tiger. And he ran off to go call Tiger. And when he got there, Tiger was busy doing his nails. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hey, don't look at my nails. And Lion told Tiger what was happening. And Tiger said, don't worry. Tiger would take care of everything. And Tiger went with Lion to Lion's Cave. When they got there, Tiger said, Hey, who's in Lion's Cave? And Tricky said, This is my cave now. And Tiger said, What? I'm Tiger, and I have great big claws to scratch you. And Tricky said, I tear tigers to pieces. Whoa, he he tears tigers to pieces? What kind of an animal tears tigers to pieces? Oh, we better go call Rhinoceros. So Tiger and Lion went to go see Rhinoceros. And when they got there, Rhino was busy taking a mud bath. La, 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 hey, don't look at me. And they told Rhino what was happening. And Rhino said, don't worry. Rhino will take care of everything. Mm. 
and Rhino went with Lion and Tiger to Lion's Cave. And when they got there, Rhino said, Hey, who's in Lion's Cave, huh? And Tricky said, This is my cave now. And Rhino said, What? I'm Rhino, and I have a great big horn to poke you. And Tricky said, I flip rhinoceroses. Oh, he, he flips rhinoceroses? Then what kind of an animal flips rhinoceroses? They said, oh, we, we better go call elephant. And so all three of them went off to go call elephant. Now nobody messes with elephant because elephant was very big and very strong and always in a bad mood. And when they got there, elephant was busy taking a nap. <laughs> And they woke him up. Hey, what's going on? And they told Elephant what was happening. Elephant said, don't worry. Elephant will take care of everything. Because nobody messes with Elephant, let me tell you. And Elephant went with Lion and Tiger and Rhino back to Lion's Cave. And when he got there, Elephant said, Hey, who's in Lion's Cave? And Tricky said, This is my cave now. Elephant said, What? I'm Elephant, and I have great big feet to step on you. And Tricky said, I squish elephants. Whoa, he he squishes elephants? He said, "What, What kind of an animal squishes elephants? Well, by this time, Lion was getting very upset and very afraid, and he went over to his cave, and Lion said, Who are you? And Tricky said, I am the bravest, strongest, meanest animal in the jungle, and I'm not afraid of anybody. And Lion said, Not anybody? And Tricky said, Well, somebody makes me afraid. And Lion said, Who is it? And Tricky said, Tricky the Turtle. Lion said, Tricky the Turtle? He said, oh man, we we better go find Tricky the Turtle. And they all ran off to go find Tricky. And when they did, Tricky came out of Lion's Cave. (laughs) Those animals, they're not very smart, are they? (laughs) And Tricky went down to the river to wait. And he waited and waited. And after a while, Lion came over to where he was. And Lion said, oh, Tricky, Tricky, you have to help me. You have to help me. And Tricky said, me help you? A little tiny turtle helping a great big lion with what? And Lion said, well, there's a great big animal living in my cave. And Tricky said, well, why don't you get him out? He said, oh, no. He he said he eats lions and he tears tigers to pieces and he flips rhinoceroses and he... He squishes elephants. And Tricky said, well, how come you think I could take care of him? And Lion said, well, because he said he was afraid of you. And Tricky said, afraid of me? Why, that's silly. He said, I know, but please, you have to help me. You have to help me. And Tricky said, oh, all right. And so Tricky went with Lion to Lion's cave. And when they got there, all the animals were hiding behind the rocks, very afraid. And Tricky came over and Tricky said, All right, stand back. I'm going in. And Tricky went inside Lion's Cave. And they waited and they waited. And all of a sudden the animals heard. They all said, Oh no, poor Tricky, poor Tricky. But Tricky came out of Lion's Cave. And Lion said, Tricky, 
what happened? And Tricky said, oh, that animal. He wasn't very strong at all. I just ate him up. And they said, what? We don't believe you. Said, if you don't believe me, go and see. They went inside, and sure enough, there was no animal in there. And they said, Tricky, you must be the bravest, strongest, meanest animal in the jungle. And Tricky said, you know what? I think you're right. And Tricky went home, and he smiled a big smile. Because now all those animals thought he was brave and strong and mean. But Tricky knew the truth. He knew the only one in Lion's Cave was him. And that is the end. Big Joe Pagliuca with uh, Tricky the Turtle and the Lion's Cave. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. Join us online for an archive filled with episodes of the Apple Seed, and of course each of those episodes filled with stories. We also have many episodes. We call them Apple Seed Extras, just a single story long, just a few minutes in case you've only got a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. Those are there at the website too, byuradio.org. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.